0: United, we can and will overcome. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. Hello and welcome to Billy Getting By, American Carnage. I'm Chloe Ward and together with my RMIT colleague Emma Shortis, we are your guides to the next six weeks of the US presidential election. A quick word about how this podcast series works. Every week, Emma and I are going to talk about news stories from the campaign trail and beyond that we think deserve closer attention as the US approaches Election Day on November 3rd. We're also going to dive into the history of US elections and presidencies past and spend some time explaining key aspects of the US political system. This week, Emma and I are talking about the California wildfires and the race for a COVID-19 vaccine. We're going back in time to try to figure out if Joe Biden really would be a New Deal president. And we're also talking about presidential power and its limits. This time around, we're also creating a weekly newsletter where we'll talk about what we think the big issues are in the 2020 presidential election and link to the stories that are helping us to get to grips with the election and its potential consequences. You'll find a link to sign up in the show notes for this episode. I think it's fair to say that most historians particularly historians of emma and my generation are these days taught to consider events and social change including great social change in terms of systems and structures rather than looking to the role of individuals and individual agency in determining the course of events by the nature u.s presidential elections challenge this logic and this way of thinking. And this 2020 presidential election in the US is no different. In fact, it's probably a more a more obvious example of how an individual can change the course of history. We're facing a very clear choice between two men. So much rides on whether Donald Trump or Joe Biden is elected president on the 3rd of November that this sort of bigger picture of the forces that are shaping the election that are facing the trajectory of the election kind of pale into significance. But Emma and I want to drag that kind of back into view. In this series, we want to draw attention to that bigger picture of how the wider context for American politics is shaping the election and how in turn the election might shape that. And I think this is particularly important when we're speaking from Australia, because there is a very real risk of tunnel vision, where you know, for people who aren't living with the day-to-day reality of American politics in 2020. So with that in mind, Emma, what's the article you want to talk about today?
1: Thanks, Chloe. So, so the one I have chosen for today is in the New York Times, and the, the article is titled How California Became Ground Zero for Climate Disasters. So when we are talking about the bigger structural issues at play, um, one of the ones that I keep coming back to is of course climate change. And the fact that this is in the New York Times and this is the headline I think is significant. The, the New York Times has been praised pretty widely I think for, for connecting climate change to the fires not just in California but in it, on the West Coast generally. That's why I was really struck by this article because on the face of it, that's what it's doing. It's bringing climate change to national political prominence. But I'm also really struck by just how um, New York Times-y this article is because what it does... And
0: what What do you mean? What do you mean by New York times
1: <laughs> So what What I mean is what it does is it, it opens with a discussion of climate change in California in particular and how California is... Um, vulnerable and subject to climate shocks in a way that perhaps other states in the United States are not. So it opens with this kind of big structural picture. But what it then does is pivot very quickly to talk to say that the reason California is so vulnerable is because we, and I'm, I'm using air quotes, we Californians have over engineered our state so much by doing things like moving enormous quantities of water, by suppressing fire, by building our cities near the coast, we have made ourselves more vulnerable to climate change. And, and you know, I, from my perspective as a historian, there's, there are a number of things wrong with that because it, it completely flattens responsibility when when you say we Californians have done this you, you're actually speaking about a very specific set of Californians with enormous power and I think connected to that what it's also failing to do is acknowledge the bigger structural issues at play around the fossil fuel lobby for example in American politics which can be held at least more responsible for this than you know a Californian family living on the coast or, or living near a forest so, so there's that I think that that is really telling. But there's also the fact that none of this is really connected to the 2020 election. So Donald Trump is mentioned in the article um, around his comments. Um, I'm not sure if you saw, Chloe, where he said that he, he said to it, sorry, he, he insisted that actually things were going to cool down. You know, climate change isn't a thing. That's yeah, not I the reason that. for these fires. Yeah, it's because we haven't raked the forests. So he's, he's mentioned in, in that context, but, but what, what isn't mentioned is that if Donald Trump is re-elected in November, um, and just actually having said that, I want to come back to this question because... When we say, you know, if Donald Trump wins, if Joe Biden wins, I think one of the things we need to keep emphasising, Chloe, which, again, I think mainstream media is sometimes failing to do, is that who actually wins in November may not end up mattering if Donald Trump refuses to leave office, if the United States descends into the farce of a contested election. But, you know, we'll come back to that. There's, I'm there's sure we sure <laughs> back to that. But so if assuming if Trump is re-elected to get back to climate change... That basically closes the door on any kind of climate action in the United States. And, you know, as you said, Chloe, where the United States goes on this, so goes the rest of the world. So that is the kind of critical analysis, I think, that is missing from not just this article. I don't want to just single out this particular article or even just the New York Times. It's in mainstream media generally, which is is talking about climate change, but I think isn't talking about it in context and isn't talking about it in terms of political power.
0: I think it's something that goes beyond the media. You mentioned before about how this this article in the New York Times is positioning climate, is positioning the over engineering of the California landscape, kind of as the the result of a collection of individual decisions. It's not then seeing those in light of a structure and seeing what that actually what those decisions represent about, you know, what is driving people to move to coastlines, what's enabling that, which is much bigger than an individual's decision to, you know, retire and move to the coast, which I'm sure we'd all love to do if we weren't facing, you know, coastal erosion and the risk of bushfires even here in Australia. But it's also, it's interesting because it, it looks to me like it is, it's a way of deflecting or avoiding blame or apportioning blame where it really needs to go because that's almost something that's too hard. One thing that's struck me recently, because I've been looking into the uh, into looking into the politics of climate communication, and you know this persistent frustration which we have here in Australia too about why, and this is typically coming from liberal policy elites, why the greater public doesn't or only very recently has come to understand the reality of climate change and you know the peril that we are facing in the coming decades. What I see is a lot of a lot of vexed opinion about why why ordinary Americans in this case don't understand the science, what we need to educate them better so they can act as responsible citizens in a democracy to elect the officials who will make those changes which seems a very circuitous way of avoiding those questions of corporate power, but also a way of kind of dismissing the other force in our society that can, you know, can obtain effective action against climate change, and that's through protest movements, for instance. It's placing a lot of pressure and a lot of the burden on Democracy to solve the problem when we probably at this point, you know, what, 30, 40 years after the science on climate change started becoming very clear, the democracy that has consistently failed us on what is, you know, the greatest challenge of our time. What that says to me is that apart from focusing on the forces outside of government and outside of parliaments that are either helping or hindering the cause of reducing global carbon em- emissions. We need to think about how we can make that democracy more meaningful and restore the connection between citizens and their elected representatives and lawmakers. On, on that note, Chloe, and,
1: and perhaps speaking about some of the greatest challenges of our time, tell us what article have you chosen to speak about?
0: Well, unlike you, Em, I've actually chosen to talk about an article that I really liked, and this was by the historian Adam Tooze in Foreign Policy, and it's about the race for a coronavirus vaccine and also what comes after and the serious challenges that are going to face America and the world as we try to have an effective distribution of a vaccine or multiple vaccine in the months and years to come. The reason I chose this article is not just because I like it, but because I think this is an issue that we don't talk about enough. We really, we really need to be thinking about this very seriously, and it's also one that touches on exactly those issues that I was just mentioning, of democracy and also the issue of inequality.
1: Okay, so this is about this is about the international pursuit of a vaccine, but the, the obvious thing that comes to mind to me is
0: that the United States isn't in, invested in that international effort, is it? No, so Donald Trump has withdrawn the US from the UN's COVAX program, which is the international cooperative effort to both produce to, to, to produce, to manufacture and to distribute a, a vaccine. And that's, you know, he's not alone in that. China and Russia, you know, it's kind of the usual suspects who have also withdrawn those their support from those global efforts. But this touches on an issue which I think has been sort of bubbling up in the media lately, especially as Australia makes its pitch towards obtaining a vaccine that's the issue of vaccine nationalism which is the very real and i think quite well judged fear from many people that rich rich states are going to monopolize supply of any vaccine that does come along in the near future
1: yeah and i I mean i think that question of access is playing out in u.s national politics as well isn't it because because trump is kind of simultaneously promising people, uh, white working class people in particular, that he is going to cut the cost of prescription drugs. But at the same time, he's kind of pouring money into big pharma, isn't he?
0: Yeah. And, you know, this is on Donald Trump's part. It's by accident or design. You never quite know with him. It's quite deft electoral positioning and it's very much about thinking about you know what's going to maximize his chances of getting a big turnout in his favor on November the 3rd so you know Big Pharma is to my mind something of an unlikely hero of the pandemic you know I'm as suspicious of anyone of Big Pharmaceuticals motives you know they're they're profit-driven enterprises which is something that is you know, a primary consideration to, to big pharmaceutical companies before necessarily public health goals or public health goals or particularly um, accessibility in terms of, of, of obtaining life-saving medicines. Um, but big pharmaceutical companies have had a really interesting role to play in the political dynamics of the pursuit of a vaccine because the other thing that they want is stability. They want an end to the pandemic as much as anyone else does. So do their financial backers. So it's very much in their interest to have a safe, effective vaccine as soon as possible. But that also means that they're working very hard to guarantee the safety of that. So there was a really interesting moment a couple of weeks ago when i think it was nine of the leading vaccine manufacturers leading candidates for a vaccine they got together and they've made a public commitment not to rush a vaccine to market before it is thoroughly tested for for its safety and, and efficacy what this you know this gesture which i think is you know a necessary one what this did is it potentially played into donald trump's hands Because they are effectively saying that Donald Trump, they're going to do what they can to stop Donald Trump from rushing a vaccine to market, particularly to stop Donald Trump from rushing a vaccine to market in October, so he can look like a hero right before the election. But to Donald Trump, Donald Trump can now position that as obstructionism by big pharmaceuticals companies who are also at the same time being cast as with a distinct role as one of those conspiratorial elites associated with the rash of conspiracy theories, particularly QAnon, which are now flourishing across the Western world and in the US in particular.
1: And I think just... I suppose, proves the point that we're trying to make, which is that everything is connected. This isn't just about this two horse race between Biden and Trump. This is about things that are much bigger than that. Because, you know, Chloe, despite the the best efforts of Big Pharma to say they're not going to race out a a vaccine that's not safe, you know, that's not necessarily going to stop Donald Trump from announcing that there's a vaccine and using that political capital
0: and as at the time of recording i'm reading reports about how dhs which is the government department that's you know responsible for the D- D- drug administration and the fda they're trying to increase their powers and their influence over the fda which is nominally an independent body that should be overseeing the approval l- approval process for a future vaccine so this is an intimately political scenario that's developing and it's also one that's going to have long-run consequences that we need to think about very carefully and that's another reason why I thought this article was really good because it's talking about not just the short term of finding and releasing a vaccine onto the market but also how we need to situate that process in terms of these bigger questions about democracy and inequality.
1: I recognize that the many
0: proclamations from state capitals and from Washington, the legislation, the treasury regulations and so forth, couched for the most part in banking and legal terms, ought to be explained for the benefit of the average citizen.
1: So the voice you just heard was President Franklin Roosevelt. And Roosevelt has come up already a lot in this uh, 2020 presidential campaign. Um, He's been evoked by President Trump and also Biden, who has said that FDR's New Deal is an inspiration. So Chloe is here today to explain to us FDR's role and how he constructed the New Deal.
0: Yeah, so we do hear a lot about FDR and the New Deal in particular, and this is even going back a few years. And I think probably, and kind of surprisingly, the main source of people's information about the New Deal these days is radical politicians. So people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, who are well known for their advocacy of what's being called a Green New Deal. The point I want to get to is that the Green New Deal is quite different from the New Deal as it was brought into being by Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s. I was listening to an interview with Joe Biden recently where he said quite explicitly that the New Deal is an inspiration to him and he said it was an inspiration to him because it is practical and not ideological. And I think, in a sense, he's quite right. So I think that's a really good point to start our discussion of the New Deal, because it was a really practical set of reforms which were responding to what was, in then, America's greatest economic crisis in the stock market crash of 1929 and the Great Depression that followed. And that was quite the economic calamity, wasn't it? well until very recently it was the greatest economic calamity of the of the modern world it was the high watermark watermark for economic collapse and you know it's something that has only only these in the past 6 months been i think finally eclipsed by the the crash associated with the coronavirus so we had the october 20, 1929 stock market crash and that led to what we call the great depression which had a massive impact on the american economy so by 1933 there were 13 million workers who were unemployed. That's about 25% of the American workforce back in the day. There were 75,000 jobs lost every week for 3 years. So this was a huge disaster. The president at the time, who who was in who was in charge at the time of the crash and in the first few years of the depression was Herbert Hoover, who had come to office as, you know, as an extremely popular president, but he just wasn't fit to the scale of the task that was in front of him in in engineering america's recovery from the depression so we get to 1932 and we've got our presidential election and at this point basically the presidency was there for roosevelt to take so as you know on the campaign trail he made vague promises about how he was going to make things better really i guess he could have promised anything as long as he wasn't promising to make things worse Um, he ended up in that election, he won a huge share of the popular vote, and very helpfully in that election, the Democratic Party also won majorities in the House and in the Senate, which, as we know, is hugely advantageous for an American president.
1: Yeah, um, massively Helpful, um, and it was very helpful to FDR. So, so he'd made vague promises. You said, Chloe, what did he actually do once he'd gotten into office?
0: What the New Deal is most well known for is it was about government intervention. It was about both regulatory intervention and also fiscal intervention. So, But the way FDR approached that was he saw that as the only choice that was available to him, and that was partly because he was scared of revolution. He was scared of what might happen on either side of politics if his, if his government and if federal government in the US continued to fail as it had done for the previous three years. So this really wasn't, you know, it was a a big program, but it wasn't a radical one. And I think one of the initiatives that FDR took that really shows that is in his setting up of the National Recovery Administration, which basically involved the White House inviting businesses to cooperate amongst themselves to set out new labor regulations and codes. What this ended up doing was massively favoring big business and effectively favoring the creation of monopolies. So that's one example of how this was all, from the start, sort of tilted towards the interests of capital. And, in fact, in May 1935, the National Recovery Administration was actually um, declared illegal by the Supreme Court, and that was over a dispute about chickens. But I don't think we've got time to go into that.
1: No, and, but chickens do play this kind of weirdly outsized role in the, in the history, at least, of um, American economics. But I guess what that sort of points to, at least, Chloe, is that agriculture played a really big role in the New Deal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's certainly, I think, some of the iconic images of New Deal America certainly are about, you know, rolling fields of corn and the huge support and stimulus that was given to the agricultural economy. But again, that favored the powerful and the privileged. So the agricultural programs of the New Deal, they were all about landowning farmers. And that meant that they weren't they didn't do much in terms of helping tenant farmers and sharecroppers. And this is where race becomes really important and you know emerges again as a persistent theme and a persistent, you know, problem of American politics because many of those those tenant farms and sharecroppers were black. So that sort of leads to another point which is that this was the New Deal was entirely focused on the economy. It wasn't a political program per se. Um, it was basically it was basically uninterested in civil rights. So while some of the New Deal relief programs gave financial assistance to Black Americans, this wasn't a period that really saw any advancement of you know either an economic agenda or civil rights.
1: Am I right in thinking that that disinterest um, extended to labor rights as well?
0: Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely right there. So I said already that, you know, that the a lot of the initial programs were about bringing business on side and allowing, you know, and enabling basically a biz- what we would call today a business led recovery. The other side of that was that FDR pleaded for cooperation from labor and from workers. And he did, you know, at the same time as he was promising you know promising a new deal he did little to enable labor rights and to enable unionism in particular and this actually led to significant blowback against him so in 1934 one and a half million workers went on strike and that led quite directly to in 1935 when fdr had to accept the wagner act, act which upheld the right to join unions and strengthened unions ability to negotiate on behalf of workers so that was definitely a progressive development that came out of the new deal but it wasn't something that was necessarily on FDR's agenda from the outset
1: but I think a lot of that Chloe has kind of been uh, lost I suppose in in more popular memory of the new deal which is is focused on basically on construction like giant dams being built and things like that
0: you know I, I hate the word iconic but I'm going to use it here because I think it is in this case justified um the new deal is yeah associated quite indelibly with those iconic images of huge dams roadways and and actually forestry so fdr was a passionate conservationist and some of the signature projects of the new deal were about both conservation and also development um So there were 250,000 unemployed young people in what was called the Civilian Conservation Corps. There was also the Tennessee Valley Authority, which saw 40,000 square miles of land reshaped for human use and also for flood prevention during the 1930s. One of the other programs that the New Deal is really well known for is the Works Progress Administration, which was basically the New Deal version of relief. Um, It employed three million people a year on public programs, which were basically getting them back to work and getting them back onto a wage. And that included things like artists and writers' programs, which is really interesting. So in all, I mean, you can talk about the success of the economic success of the New Deal, but it was absolutely a political success because... FDR, he was a hugely popular president. When it came around to the 1936 election, he not only won but he extended his majority and he actually carried all but two states in the electoral college.
1: Yeah, which is an extraordinary achievement and you know, he actually went on to to serve uh, a third term and then died in office. And and his popularity endures and you know, I think that's reflected in the fact that both Trump and Biden during this campaign are evoking his memory. Now, Chloe, I want to just go back though because you you said at the outset that you didn't think the new deal was a radical program but hearing about that kind of mobilization the mobilization of that many people and that much money um from the federal government in the u.s it does sound kind of radical to me um but maybe that's just in retrospect in light of what's happened since yeah yeah
0: no i think that's um i think that comparative point is really interesting because yeah certainly compared to what we see in terms of public investment and public works in the USA, nothing has ever really stood up to the example that was set by the New Deal. When I say it wasn't a radical program, what I'm saying is that the New Deal favoured sectional interest and it favoured the interests of capital ahead of the interests of workers and labour. It it didn't confront capitalism. It asked capitalism to work better. In that sense, I, I think it does set up what has become an enduring theme of American politics and American liberalism in, in particular. You know, even today we see that American liberals and re- Americans of the center, they're always asking capitalism to do better. And to be honest, you know, going right back to the history of the New Deal, I don't know why they're always so surprised by the answer. Um, The other thing about it is that, you know, like I said before, it was silent on race and it was silent on civil rights and it did nothing to confront segregation. It also didn't work. So unemployment went down, but I think it hovered at something around 14% for the rest of the 1930s. The New Deal also didn't do that much in terms of remedying economic inequality and while it set up the rudiments of a welfare state we have to look to the history of the second world war to understand why the usa in the decades that followed that war entered a period of great economic prosperity and also relative social equality what i mean when i say that is that during the second world war we saw the mobilization of the industrial economy which was hugely decisive in kick-starting the american economy after years of sluggishness at this point it was also a period of great worldwide upheaval so the usa it came out of the second world war as the undisputed preeminent political and economic actor in the west and this was also the second world war also gave way to a period of cold war which as we've explained previously on the podcast kind of acted as a guarantor against the excesses of capitalism for the usa in the decades afterwards
1: okay so so if the new deal wasn't an economic success in that sense. can we could we say it's a political success?
0: I think we can say it was really significant politically and that's because it's the biggest thing it did was it legitimated a greater role for federal gov- government in economic life than it had ever had before. And that's something that lasted right through to the 1980s and to Reaganism and Reaganism's demand that government, get out of the way of the economy and get out of American you know out of American public life. It also set up, you know, a set of stable federal institutions that did make capitalism more accountable and more transparent. And I think in a sense, you know, and this also carries through in some, in popular memory to an extent this is what I think um some of the radical people who are, trying to, who are trying to revive the principles of the New Deal, that's what the legacy they're calling on, it introduced Americans to the idea that they had inalienable rights, specifically rights to economic security, and that's something that would continue to, to influence American life until, you know, the 40 years of neoliberalism that we might hope were kind of passing out of, and that's the, the thread that's been picked up not necessarily by Joe Biden but by Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders.
1: And I think um, the revival of that idea as economic security being one of those integral rights is alongside things like freedom of speech, which we hear about all the time, is, is one of the really interesting phenomena that we're seeing at the moment. Um, and I, I guess that kind of leads me to ask you about the Green New Deal and how different the Green New Deal is to the New Deal, the original deal.
0: Well, I think the Green New Deal... Um... In its, you know, most aspirational and optimistic form, and the form that you know, and the basis on which it's been proposed by people like ocasio Cortez and Sanders, it's much more radical than the New Deal ever was. It, you know, it, it basically it demands a a sharply curtailed role for private for for private manufacturers, for capital in public life and in the determination of what the what the economy looks like in the future, and particularly what a sustainable economy looks like. So I think you know the green new deal is a step forward from the new deal what we might get from a Biden presidency is going to be much more in line with what we actually what, with the reality and the real you know the real history of FDR's new deal in the 1930s I, I think that there's kind of a risk in anyone seeking to cover the, the Trump presidency in great detail and also looking at a presidential election that will we kind of focus too heavily on the president. And I know for to Australian eyes, the president, he's, he's so closely associated with American power and American power in the world. So I thought I'd ask Emma a few questions about the presidency itself and how much power it has, what those powers are, and where the other centers of power are in the United States. So Emma, could you tell me a little bit about what powers the president actually has?
1: Yeah, sure. So Article 2 of the Constitution lays out those powers, and they actually the formal powers of the president are actually very limited and and were deliberately made that way because the framers, I suppose, didn't want to create another monarch. They wanted, wanted a leader who was accountable. So in Article 2, the president has basically four main powers. The first one is the power of the executive branch, so to enforce and execute the laws that are passed by Congress. So Congress has the power to make those laws, but the president enforces them. The president has judicial powers to appoint judges. So that's one of the things that Trump has been doing very effectively. But that has to be confirmed by the Senate. So the Senate gets final final sign-off on those. The same is true for the next set of powers, which are the powers of foreign policy. So the ability to do things like negotiate treaties, negotiate trade agreements. But again, they can only come with Senate consent. And then the final area of power that the president has is that they are the commander-in-chief of the armed forces.
0: I mean, when you put it like that, it doesn't sound like that much, does it?
1: No, it doesn't. Like I think you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, the power to negotiate treaties and, and conduct foreign policy is a significant one, and perhaps that's part of the reason we see the president as so powerful from outside. But the president doesn't have power, you know, arguably the greatest power of government, which is to allocate federal money. The president can't decide on things like budgets or how money will be spent. So, so it, the presidency is, I think, severely limited in that way. Having said that, what I've spoken about are the formal powers of the presidency. And actually what's happened over time is the informal powers of the president have been uh, kind of informally, I guess, expanded.
0: Okay, uh, so so what are those informal powers?
1: Well, I think the most obvious example is in that fourth area of power that the, the president has in that they are the commander-in-chief of the army. So technically speaking, only Congress has the power to actually declare war on, on another country. But in practice, previous presidents have what, what they have effectively done is make wars without calling them that. So they've made wars without getting permission from Congress by doing things like calling a war something else, by calling it a police action, which is exactly what happened in Korea. And then the, what the president, presidents have done is kind of informed Congress after the fact. And and basically every single time Congress has given consent in some way or have avoided the question of congressional oversight over that expanding presidential power. And so what that has kind of resulted in in practice is basically a president being free to, de- to declare a war in all but name.
0: So it's interesting that you're kind of pointing to something I wanted to ask you about, which is that issue of... I guess the creeping powers of the president and it brings to mind some criticism that was made of President Obama especially in the later years of his presidency where he was seen to be basically ruling by executive order and that was because he had an obstructive congress that was standing in the way of his major reforms so and in a way that was seen as laying a precedent that was ready for Trump to follow how do you how do you see that is that a fair assessment of obama
1: look i think in a way it is you're right that that obama issued a lot of executive orders which is a power granted to, to the president precisely because congress was completely obstructive and it, and he and his team i think regarded it as as basically the only way that he was able to act in some areas and, and Obama was far from the first president to have done that. And Trump has certainly followed that path. So, you know, there, there is certainly that precedent. But Congress does have the power to, to override executive orders. The question then becomes when, when Congress has the the willingness and the ability to do that. And so what I think what we're kind of talking about is effectively a broken system, a system that is now so constrained that there isn't really a way through that doesn't involve really significant reforms to the nature of the United States government.
0: The other thing I wanted to ask is about where the states fit into this. And the reason I wanted to ask you about that is because obviously we've seen this huge upsurge of, prote- of protest um, through the Black Lives Matters movement in the past few months. And one of their most concrete demands is one that's being made of cities and state legislatures to defund the police. What? How does that, I mean, clearly that's very targeted at the states. What powers do the states have and what powers could the presidency have? in responding to claims for racial justice?
1: I think that's a that's a really good question. And, and I think at the moment, at least, the short answer is not much. So you're right that those powers of policing lie with the states and even below the level of the states at, at cities. And, and certain cities have been making significant reforms, um, things that Congress could do is, is do things like come up with national legislation that mandates kind of, you know, minimum standards for police behaviour. But those kind of powers um, have always been, I think, contested. You know, who, who has the power, where power lies with states or with the federal government is an ongoing argument in the United States that hasn't been resolved and is often left up to the courts. And that's why that power of the president to appoint judges is so important. And it is one that, that presidents focus on so much. It's because it's so important for making those kind of decisions. Um, and, and that's probably something that we will talk about more when we come to elections.
0: Thanks for listening to Barely Getting By American Carnage. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, don't forget to sign up to our newsletter using the link in the show notes.